Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is not about COVID-19. It is about something really important for trade, though, which is shipping. Some listeners may have heard of the book called The Box. It's by Mark Levinson, who's a historian living here in Washington, D.C. Although this book came out a couple of years ago now, both Samia and I read it again recently and thought it was so good that we had to have Mark come on Trade Talks and tell the story. The story is the history of the container. So that's those big metal boxes you see piled up on container ships. The full title of the book is The Box, How the Shipping Container Made the World Smaller. And it really did. Ports used to be these huge, massive bottlenecks in the process of trading stuff. But after containers took over in the 1960s and 70s, all that happened at the port was that the boxes had to be unloaded and loaded onto ships. They were all the same size and you didn't need as many people. It could be automated. And all that meant that it was a lot cheaper. Overall, it meant that over the second half of the 20th century, the cost of moving stuff fell a lot. And if it becomes cheaper to move stuff from A to B, it's like the world just got smaller. It's as if you start out with a tariff and then suddenly, poof, the tariff is taken away. Amazing. Amazing. And and obviously there is a lot more to the story than just falling trade costs. In particular, there is one man at the heart of the story, Malcolm McLean. Mark essentially says that he is the one who made containers happen. And we'll get to Malcolm But we started off by asking Mark what shipping used to be like. Before container shipping came along, it was really very expensive to move things internationally. It was quite labor-intensive. Suppose you had a factory somewhere and you were trying to produce goods for export. You would have a carpentry shop in the back of your factory, and the carpentry shop would make a crate for these goods to be shipped in. The crate would be loaded onto a truck. The truck might take it to a train station or might take it all the way to the port. The crate would be removed from the truck. It would be moved into a warehouse near the docks. It would sit in the warehouse until the right ship came along. And then it would be taken out of the warehouse onto the dock, and it would be lifted into the hold of the ship. And there, a bunch of dock workers would shove the crate into place in in the hold. And this process would be reversed at the other end of the voyage. Now, ships were not very large in the, say, 1950s, but a typical ship sailing between the United States and Europe might have 200,000 separate pieces of cargo, like this crate. So you can imagine that it could take a week or more to load the ship, a week or more to unload the ship. Typically, it could take three or four months for your shipment to go from a U.S. factory to your customer somewhere in Europe. So there was a lot of cost, a lot of delay, and very, very low reliability. You really couldn't count on your cargo getting there at any given time. So it was a very rudimentary business. It was a very labor-intensive business. There were lots and lots of people. New York had close to 50,000 dock workers in the early 1950s. London had almost as many. And This was because there was, at certain times, a huge need for labor to move goods around on the docks. So these people had effectively part-time jobs, except they didn't know which time they were going to be working. They had to show up every day and try to find a job. 
Some days there would be jobs for all of these dock workers. Some days there would be very few jobs on the docks. And so it was a, a precarious lifestyle in a certain sort of way, and it was all keyed to the arrival and departure of ships. But how was the work itself? Was this a fun job that, that everybody wanted to have? Dock work was in most places, in most countries, a family job. Okay, Fathers passed it on to their sons. It was a job that generally paid well when the dock workers were working. It was a dangerous job. Dock work was really one of the most dangerous jobs there was because these people were mainly working outdoors, often in foul weather. They were carrying things up gangplanks that were covered with ice. They were trying to handle very heavy cargo in the midst of a snowstorm. A mistake could be fatal. And, and so it was really very difficult work. It required a great deal of strength. Okay, so, so the work was fairly unpleasant, you know, and, and you have this bigger infrastructure or bigger system of, of moving stuff from A to B that sounds like it was very slow, very unreliable, and, and very expensive. Could you tell us a bit about, you know, the broader implications for the economy, what was made more difficult, how did that affect, you know, the location of where things happened? Shipping in the 1950s was really expensive compared to the value of goods. Uh, this had a couple of consequences. One is that a lot of things just didn't get traded internationally. It was simply not worth the cost. So a great deal of merchandise that we see in international trade today simply was not exported back then. Because shipping was expensive and because it cost a lot of money to move goods between, say, a ship and a truck, it made sense to have industry in the ports. And so the world's great port cities, think of London, Hamburg, Brooklyn, were great industrial centers. People forget that today, but Brooklyn in the 1950s was one of the most important industrial centers in the United States. And that was necessary to minimize the cost of moving freight. Of course, once container shipping came in and the cost of moving freight fell, it was no longer necessary to have all of this industry right in the port. But even today, if you go along the Brooklyn waterfront, you can see uh, many of these now fashionable buildings that are used for offices or loft apartments that back in the day were industrial buildings or were warehouses that were put there specifically to load cargo onto the ships. So you've just suggested that things changed. So who is Malcolm McLean? Malcolm McLean was a trucker. And he has an important part in this story, and so does his background as a trucker. Um, McLean's business, which he'd started in the 1930s, was basically running freight from the Carolinas up to New York and New England textiles, tobacco, things like that. And he'd built one of the country's biggest trucking companies. In the age of regulation, back in those days, you have to remember, freight rates were regulated. What each truck could carry was regulated by the federal government. This was a very regulated environment. And so if you wanted to, to build your business, if you wanted to gain market share, you had to have very tight control of costs because that was the only way that you could reduce freight rates against your competitor. So McLean was obsessive about keeping his company's costs low. He was very concerned because in the 1950s, we had the post-war boom in the United States. A lot of people were buying cars for the first time. 
And it was taking a lot longer for his trucks to drive along the roads between the Carolinas and the Northeast. And he had this idea, suppose we put these trucks on a ship and we can take the trucks down the coast from New England or New York to North Carolina and get around all this traffic. Okay. He looked at it for a while and decided that idea didn't really make sense because having a truck on a ship took up a lot of wasted space. And so naturally, the next idea was, well, suppose we take the back off of the truck, just take the trailer and put it on the ship. And that's what he then did. That was really the genesis of what became containerization. It's an interesting story because people look now retrospectively at how much the container has changed the world, and Malcolm McLean had no interest at all in changing the world. His interest was finding a more efficient way to run his trucking company, and putting trailers on ships was simply a means to do that. One thing led to another, and eventually container shipping became a big business. Okay, so Malcolm McLean is arguably you know, the father of, of containerization, or at least that's kind of one of the arguments you make in your book. That is a, a contested idea, right? So others have pointed out that actually, you know, containerization was around before World War II. So why do you think it was really him that started it? What was so special about what he did? Because others had been putting boxes on ships before, right? People had been trying to put boxes on ships since the 1700s, okay? This was not a new idea. Malcolm McLean's insight, really the insight that built containerization, was that the box was not what mattered. What mattered was a system that would save costs for his customers. That's what was going to make containerization attractive. He was not obsessed by the technology. He was not particularly interested in ships. What he was interested in was finding a system to make everything work that would lower the cost. And he had a big advantage because he came out of the trucking industry. So he didn't have to deal with all of the people in the maritime industry who said, this is how you do things. He could say, why don't we try it this way? And maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll save money for our customers and get their cargo there in a better way. The box is the easy part. Okay? And he understood that, that the box is just a hunk of metal. The real issue here was how do you build a system to make it viable to ship these things around first the country and then around the world. So how did Malcolm McLean do this? How did he actually start a company and, and put this idea forward? Well, McLean's original idea was that his truck line should uh, have ships and put its truck trailers on these ships. He couldn't do that. Those were the days of regulation. We had an agency in the United States called the Interstate Commerce Commission that oversaw the trucking industry. And its idea was that trucking should be trucking and railroads should be railroads and shipping should be shipping and these should be different industries and, and not related. So it would not allow a trucking company to run a ship line. McLean was forced to sell his trucking company in order to buy a ship line. And he had to buy a ship line because a ship line already had the right to operate in the United States. Again, under regulation, one couldn't simply get a ship and start carrying cargo. He needed government permission, and so he had to comply with these rules. He sold off what was one of the biggest trucking companies in the country, 
and bet everything on a totally untested idea, namely that you could make a profit carrying freight in containers. Okay, so he's moved out of trucking and he's he's gone into shipping. So what are you know, the first three steps he has to do to make that new company a success? So there were a couple of things McLean had to do. One was to get permission to operate. And he bought an existing steamship line called Pan-Atlantic Steamship that let him carry cargo along the U.S. East Coast and the Gulf of Mexico coast. That was number one. Number two, he had to get ships. Back in those days, there was no such thing as a container ship. There were a lot of smaller ships left over from World War II. And so he acquired a couple of old tanker ships, and he built metal frames on top of these ships so that his truck trailers could fit into these metal frames. Part of the idea here was that if nobody wanted to ship cargo in those truck trailers, he could always carry oil in the tanker. So now he had his operating permission, now he had a couple of ships, and then he had to find people who wanted to use container shipping. And that was really a challenge. Again, this was an industry that didn't exist. The world was not out there saying we need container shipping. McLean was a very sales-oriented manager, and he hired a team of people who were not out of the shipping industry, whose job it was to go to industrial customers and persuade them that they really wanted to ship their goods from, say, the Northeast to Texas in containers. And when he was able to do those things, He was able to start offering a container shipping service from Newark to Houston, Texas. Over the years, this grew slowly. The real growth came when he started offering service between the United States and Puerto Rico, where, of course, there's no competition from railroads. There's no competition for trucks. And reducing the cost of shipping to Puerto Rico was a very big deal for the people in Puerto Rico. And that was key to building his business. This was entirely a domestic business for the first several years. So can you tell us about, I guess, some of the bottlenecks, right? You have this one one company, Malcolm McLean. He's he's worked out that you can you can put boxes on ships and he's he's thought about this system. But what were the other bigger changes in infrastructure that that he needed to make this really catch on? Once Malcolm McLean started putting boxes on ships, uh, other ship lines in the United States had the same idea. We can do that too. And each one then developed its own container because they decided that Malcolm McLean's containers, which were 35 feet long, were not right for their particular line of business. So you had a ship line that developed 24-foot containers and another one that had 17-foot containers. And, of course, the way you lifted these containers was different. Each container has little gadgets on the corners by which it can be lifted, and those are patented. So the way that Malcolm McLean lifted his containers for Sealand service couldn't be used by another ship line. It had its own way of lifting containers. Well, what this meant was that the industry was very fragmented, and it made container shipping pretty unattractive to customers. Think about yourself as the shipping manager of a factory. Okay, you've got your goods ready to go. You've put them into a container, but because you chose a certain container to put your goods in, that determines which ship 
your goods can go in. They can't go on the next ship because you've just chosen a container that doesn't fit on the next ship. So you're going to have to wait until a, a ship comes along that can fit your container. This was obviously not a, a recipe for growth. And so there was a lot of talk about coming up with a standard idea for a container, a standard size, a standard width, a standard strength, because some people wanted to stack a lot of containers on top of one another and others didn't care. All of these were differences among containers. And there were perhaps 10 years of negotiations, first in the United States and then internationally, to develop what we now know as the standard 40-foot shipping container. How about ports? What did, what did ports need to do to be able to adjust to the, the new life of the containers? As happens a lot with new technology, it took a while for people to figure out the economics of container shipping. Uh, right at the beginning, uh, Malcolm McLean had his tankers with uh, the, uh, the frames for containers on the top, and they sailed between Newark and Houston, stopping along the way. They might stop at Savannah, Jacksonville, Tampa, Mobile, New Orleans, and eventually they'd get to Houston. And it worked out pretty soon that this didn't make any economic sense because stopping in each port delayed the ship, which raised the cost of the voyage, which made containerization economically not very attractive. So it became apparent pretty quickly that for container shipping to work, unlike traditional shipping, you actually needed to center things in a few large ports. This meant that a lot of smaller ports lost their business. There was really not much need for them. There was not much demand for container shipping. So you saw smaller ports end up having truck service that took the containers to the, the bigger ports. And many of these smaller ports took years to recover or never did recover their business. Just to give you an example, a place like Boston was a major port in the pre-container days. After the container came in, cargo for Boston typically went through New York and then was taken by truck to Boston. Uh, Boston ceased to be a major port. The same was true of a, a port such as Mobile in, in Alabama. The shipping industry was quite concentrated. And that, by the way, has gone on until today. A vast share of the world's cargo moves between major ports. These are known as load centers. Smaller ports may get little or no cargo coming directly from another country by ship. Typically, they're getting deliveries by truck or train from a major port. So what did these, these big ports have to do to, be, to become the big ports? A couple of things happened here. One is that many of the big ports had to relocate. The port facilities were in places that just were not suited to containers. In New York, for example, the shipping industry was along the docks of Brooklyn and Manhattan. Well, first of all, container shipping required some large flat surfaces on which to store containers. You couldn't very easily do that in Manhattan. Second, a lot of containers needed to be moved in and out of the port. And typically, they were moved in as a ship was arriving to load the container and then taken out as the ship was unloaded. And you couldn't very easily do that in a very crowded urban area. In New York, the port was essentially relocated across the Hudson River to New Jersey, where there was more land and easy access to New Jersey Turnpike. 
in San Francisco. The port moved across San Francisco Bay to Oakland, where, again, there was easier access and more space. In London, the port closed up, and the container shipping moved through other UK ports rather than London. If you go to a place like Rotterdam, to take an example, Rotterdam has always been a major port, but the container docks are miles and miles from where the old port used to be. You no longer want the port in the old city because the old city just doesn't have space for containers. How did the physical ships change? You said earlier that, you know, before containerization, they used to be quite small. One of the reasons that the discussion of standardizing containers was so important is that without a standard container, ship lines were very reluctant to invest in ships. Just put yourself in the situation of a a shipping industry executive in the early 1960s. You wanted to build a ship to carry containers. Well, should you build a ship designed around 24-foot containers or around 35-foot containers or around 40-foot containers? Each of those would require different dimensions for your ship. And if you guessed wrong, you had just built a ship that was worthless. So the industry was stuck. It was only when there was agreement on a standard container, a 40-foot long container, eight feet wide, that money started to pour into this industry. At that point, uh, ship owners started building pure container ships, ships designed to carry nothing but containers in very large numbers. And over time, the size grew. Malcolm McLean's first voyage back in 1956 had carried 68 containers. First ships started carrying a couple of hundred containers, and then it got up into the thousands, and there was just a steady increase over time. This required uh, other sorts of technology, because with all these containers, you had to have ways of getting the containers off the ship and then reloading the ship. If that took too long, the economics didn't work out. So then there had to be better crane technology to load and unload the ships more quickly. So one thing led to another, and you ended up with a much more automated industry. So we'll return to this issue of how big the the ships ultimately get. But tell us a little bit more about how this ultimately spreads around the world. So it starts in the United States, but, you know, clearly takes off. Container shipping became an international business in 1966. Up until that point, there had been some containers shipped internationally, but they were shipped in the hold of holds of traditional ships. Uh, they would be put into the hold along with the various boxes and barrels and bales and shoved into place. It was a pretty inefficient system. Once the 40-foot standard container was agreed on, then ship lines built larger ships that could travel internationally and carry larger numbers of containers. Malcolm McLean's company, uh, Sealand Service, had the first of these ships, which sailed between the United States and Europe. It called it Rotterdam. It called it Hamburg soon. It called uh, at British ports. And it was carrying U.S. military cargo for part of its load because there were a lot of U.S. troops in Germany in those days. And uh, they needed to move a lot of things back and forth. But it was looking for commercial cargo as well. One of the first cargoes was Scotch whiskey. There was already a significant trade in Scotch whiskey, but one of the big problems was that a lot of it got stolen along the way. 
uh, cargo shipping in containers was much more secure. You could lock up the container and it was harder to pilfer. And so Scotch whiskey became a very popular cargo. The conventional wisdom was that a container shipping was great across the Atlantic, but it would never work across the Pacific. The thinking here was that container shipping saved a lot of time in the process of loading and unloading a ship, not so much time when the ship was actually sailing, and it was going to spend so much time sailing across the Pacific that people said the economics just don't make sense here. So Malcolm McLean tested that himself. In the 1960s, the United States was at war in Vietnam. There was a considerable logistical mess. Uh, the U.S. Army was very embarrassed by cargo piling up on the docks of Saigon and sent out orders to clean this stuff up. Malcolm McLean went to the Pentagon and said, hey, we have a better way of doing this. We can use container ships to carry the cargo from the United States to Vietnam. The military somewhat reluctantly agreed to this and gave Sealand Service a contract to carry freight between California and Vietnam. And it worked out. It resolved the logistical problems. McLean actually had to build his own port in Vietnam to handle the containers. But it turned out to be a viable business. And it developed that the size of the Pacific Ocean was really no obstacle at all to container shipping. McLean's contract provided that he got paid for carrying the cargo from the United States to Vietnam. He didn't get paid for carrying anything back because there wasn't much cargo coming back. So, of course, he asked the question, what can we do with these ships to make some money coming back to the United States? And someone had the brilliant idea of, suppose we stop in Japan. And that was really the beginnings of the large trade between Asia and the United States when it became possible to ship stereos and car parts and other Japanese exports to the United States uh, in container ships. So one thing that does seem very important to both when this is getting kicked off the transatlantic route and the transpacific route, this first step seemed to be a lot of government contracts servicing these military uh, needs, either in West Germany or, or in Vietnam. How critical was that, do you think? Would this have happened, you know, but for uh, those kinds of scenarios being there to help subsidize, essentially, um, an industry that might not have been able to, to be profitable enough without it? I think the government contracts were very important in the early stage, but the reality is that everyone understood that the old way of shipping, break bulk shipping, was very expensive. There was a lot of loss and damage of cargo. It was very unreliable. And industry, by which I mean manufacturing, was very eager to move to something else. They understood that container shipping offered a better alternative. You could see that by how quickly break bulk shipping disappeared. International shipping across the Atlantic with container ships began in 1966. In just a couple of years, there was no more break bulk shipping. Everyone wanted to use containers because they understood that that was a better technology. So we've got this new way of shipping. This is really taking off. How did the workers that were at these ports that were having to help do the shipping, how did they respond to this new technology? It was very clear to the labor unions that containerization would reduce the number of jobs on the docks. 
they were concerned about trying to protect their members' jobs uh, as much as possible, but they were also interested in trying to have a more stable relationship between longshoremen and uh, their employers. Most dock workers at that point in time had very tenuous employment. And so some of the unions saw that there was an opportunity here maybe to have fewer jobs on the docks, but more full-time jobs on the docks. People could become regular dock workers rather than having to go through this very undignified process of showing up every morning to try to get a job for the day. There was a prolonged period of negotiation on both the Atlantic coast of the United States and the Pacific coast about how to handle the labor implications of containerization. There were different unions on both coasts. And the unions wanted some protection for all of the people who would lose their jobs. This played out very differently. On the West Coast, there was a famous agreement called the Modernization and Mechanization Agreement. And what this did basically was make a one-time payment from the port employers to the dock workers who are displaced. Uh, we'll give you money. If you're old enough to retire, we'll give you a pension. But that's it. We're done. And thank you very much for having worked on the docks for all these years. On the East Coast, it was quite different. There was an arrangement made called the Guaranteed Annual Income. And the idea here was that on every container coming into the ports, there would be a tax. And that tax would be used to pay money to dock workers who could not find jobs because of automation on the docks. These workers, these displaced workers, actually had to show up at the hiring hall every day, not get work, but check in, and then go home again. And if they did that regularly, they got a paycheck. There were thousands of workers who actually received steady pay for years for not working on the East Coast. They got paid until they retired. You have to go back in time to how this problem was perceived in the 1960s, which is when uh, the unions and management tried to negotiate these things. There was a lot of concern about automation in the United States. Uh, there were questions about how to deal with it. Uh, do you simply try to retrain workers? Well, the dock workers didn't have much education in general. Retraining might be a problem. And it went also beyond simply the job because it was very typical that dock workers lived in communities near the waterfront. So when their job was going, that meant all the jobs in the neighborhood were going. And it meant that basically the underpinnings of their entire community were being undermined. So how do you deal with this? I regard the idea that you're paying these people to show up and not work every day for years and years as a real waste. It's somewhat tragic. Okay, these are people who did have skills. They did have some knowledge. And yet you're telling them, stay in place and do nothing so you can collect your paycheck for not actually working. I think that's really demeaning in a certain way and was a rather unfortunate a resolution, but it did meet the needs of the, the various parties concerned. The, the number of dock workers in New York dropped from probably around 30,000 in the mid-1950s to fewer than 3,000 by the turn of the, the 21st century. So there were a lot of jobs that went away. 
So containerization takes off, right? And we're in a world where everyone is basically racing to invest in this this amazing new technology. Presumably, you know, port authorities are trying to make themselves the big hub port that everyone goes through because there's just going to be one that, that services, you know, international shipping. Can you tell us about some of the the ups and downs of, of I guess, the cycles of, of shipping, you know, over the, the second half of the, the 20th century? Container shipping changed the economics of the shipping industry in some unexpected ways. Perhaps the most important was that it made shipping an extremely capital-intensive business. These ships were very expensive by the standards of of shipping at the time, and they had mortgages attached. The docks had cranes that were expensive. They had loans attached. So all of a sudden, you had a lot of money tied up in these ships. You couldn't just tie them up to the dock. What this meant was that this became a very, very cyclical industry because capacity had to stay in use even when the business went away. So rates became very volatile. When times were good, uh, the rate to ship was quite high. When times were bad, uh, rates plummeted because the ship owners had to keep their ships in service even if there wasn't much cargo. Ships would sail anytime there was enough cargo to cover operating costs. If the cargo was sufficient to pay for the fuel and the crew, you kept your ship operating. And so this became an extremely volatile industry. A lot of money poured into container shipping in the 1960s and the 1970s. People said, this is a go-go industry. This is the next big thing. We're going to make a killing here. And the folks who made those sorts of investments generally were sorry because it turned out that shipping was actually a commodity business at the end of the day. Your ship was really not much different from somebody else's ship, and you had really no control over the rates that you were going to be able to charge in a competitive market. So when the economy was going great guns, you could do real well. When the economy turned south and you didn't have cargo on your ship, you were going to lose your shirt. There were many, many bankruptcies in shipping. So what happened to Malcolm McLean at the end of this story? McLean built a, a sizable ship line, and then he got an offer to buy it. A big uh, tobacco company uh, was spinning off cash, R.J. Reynolds, and it thought that it could make a lot of money using its tobacco cash to build a ship line. So it bought McLean's business. Uh, McLean was on the board f- for a while, but this was very corporate. McLean hated it. And so McLean eventually went off the board of R.J. Reynolds. Uh, R.J. Reynolds came to regret having purchased a ship line. It found that being in the very volatile shipping business was nothing at all like being in the cigarette business. Its shareholders hated the ship line. McLean, meanwhile, decided he wanted to get back in the game. So he bought another ship line. He bought a company called United States Lines, which was the largest U.S. ship line. And he determined to build that into the biggest container carrier, just as he'd built Sealand Service earlier on. But when McLean had built Sealand Service, container shipping was young. It was an industry that was still emerging. People did not fully understand the economics. There were a lot of small players. 
when he tried to build United States lines, he was running up against much more sophisticated competitors. We're talking now uh, in the second half of the 1980s. And many of these companies were much more tightly managed than the old family ship lines of the 1950s and 60s. It was a different kind of competition. And McLean got caught overexpanding in the container shipping industry. Uh, he had the idea that there would be around-the-world service. This turned out to be economically not really viable. Most customers had no need for around-the-world service. United States lines eventually went bankrupt. At the time, it was the biggest bankruptcy in U.S. history. And McLean had to lay off thousands of workers. Uh, he lost his own job. And for many years, he withdrew from public view. Malcolm McLean died in 2001. Um, and, you know, if we if we accept this point that he is the father of containerization, what what would you say was, I guess, his legacy for the for the global economy? What did containerization mean for for the way that that the economy operates today? Containerization resulted in an enormous change in economic geography, which is essentially where things are done in the world. Before containerization came along, and even in the early days of containerization, trade essentially meant you make something here and you ship it there. It was a pretty simple business if you think of it like that. But as the cost of international shipping came down and as international shipping became much more reliable, businesses realized that they could do other things. This was the beginning of what's now referred to as value chains. The idea that you could make a component here, send it in a ship to a different country to be incorporated into some other component, and then send that component to a different place to be made uh, into a final product. This is a totally different sort of trade from what existed in Malcolm McLean's day. No one had anticipated that trade would develop in this direction. These days, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense in most cases to talk about an American product or a Chinese product because most of the products that you can think about are produced in different countries. And in some way or other, the various pieces are brought together. It was container ships and the reduction in the cost of freight transportation that made that system possible. That's really Malcolm McLean's legacy. Do you think there are any costs of, of containerization or any, I guess, you know, frictions or problems that you, you still see today? One of the interesting things that has happened with containerization is that a system which seemed hugely efficient at the time is no longer so efficient today. There's a, a vast investment in container ships, in cranes, in ports, in containers themselves. And this is all built around a 40-foot-long container, the standard container that was agreed back in the 1960s. Well, today, it's possible to carry 53-foot containers on U.S. highways. When you bring a standard container into the United States, it means that the trucking of that container is much less efficient. And we actually have a sizable business in the United States now that involves removing the goods from 40-foot containers that are coming into the country 
and placing them into 53-foot containers that can be hauled away by truck. Everybody understands that it's silly to have a business like that, but it's not so easy to change the ships. Now you've got thousands of ships around the world that are built to handle 40-foot containers. You've got thousands of cranes around the world that are built to handle 40-foot containers, and there's no easy way to switch to a different dimension. This is what economists know as lock-in, and it has resulted in a system that is somewhat uh, inefficient, but a system we can't get out of. We've also had a lot of inefficiencies introduced by the ceaseless growth of ships. Ship lines, since Malcolm McLean's first voyage in 1956, have built bigger and bigger ships searching for economies of scale. And if you think about it, that makes some sense, okay? If you're going to build a larger ship, it doesn't need more engines than a smaller ship. It probably doesn't need a bigger crew than a smaller ship. So the cost per container goes down, and that's why ship lines have done that. But starting in the early 2000s, these ships got to be of enormous size. We now have ships sailing the seas that carry as much cargo as can be carried on 11,000 full-size trucks on one vessel. From the point of view of a ship line, this is very efficient. You're carrying a lot of stuff on a single ship. But from the point of view of the freight transportation system, it's really inefficient. You need to spend a lot of money deepening the harbor so that this ship can call. You need a lot of cranes to unload this ship because there's so many boxes to move off and so many boxes to move on. You have fewer ships because there's more cargo on each ship. So all of a sudden, your ports are dealing with a very lumpy business. There's nobody in the port today. And then tomorrow, all of a sudden, there are thousands upon thousands of boxes that have to move. So things are very congested. As a result, the efficiency of the freight transportation system has actually been declining in the past few years, simply because everybody went for size. Everybody thought being bigger would be more efficient. And as it turned out, getting too big was less efficient. Okay. And, and, and so you're continuing to follow the shipping industry and, and, and trade. And you, you updated your book, right, to, to add an extra chapter for the 2016 edition. Are you going to work on another one? Is there, is there more shipping to come? Or are you, you turning to something else now? Uh, I continue to be very interested in the shipping industry. Uh, it's been quite interesting to see how the industry has fallen into this trap of extremely large ships, mega ships, as they're known, that have caused almost everybody in the industry to lose a lot of money. It's, it's been really uh, fascinating to watch a series of uh, self-destructive decisions in many cases that have really decimated the companies that thought they were going to make a lot of money from big ships. I continue to work on globalization. I have a book on globalization coming out in the fall. Very good. Um, Mark, thank you so much. My pleasure. That was Mark Levinson, historian and author of The Box how the shipping container made the world smaller. A huge thanks to him. And we should say that we recorded this episode well before we got stuck in this whole COVID business, which is why we didn't mention it in the episode. But if you're interested, don't worry, we're working on another one with some folks in the industry so we can learn all about how shipping is doing right now. Thanks again to Mark and also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. 
when we talk about container ship capacity, we use a measure that's been developed called a 20-foot equivalent unit. This is what's used to see which port is the biggest, which ship is the biggest. A typical 40-foot shipping container is two 20-foot equivalent units, two TEUs, because obviously two is better than one. 